The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Extended. Hi, this is Peter Johnson from Aerospace Radio Station Extended. And we bring you some of Europe's best guests. He's, he's been something of, of an unsung hero of the American space program, outside those who are, have made it their business to become aficionados of it. News. <laughs> some people will call you mad. Some people will call you heroes. Uh, uh, and everyone else is probably somewhere in that spectrum. It's, uh, it's an amazing project to, to pull together from literally from scratch. And views. You've got to pick yourself up, dust yourself off, and learn from that experience. And that's not an easy thing to do, Peter, learning from your own failure. So why not give us a listen if you want to hear about warbirds, aviation, and the aerospace industry? Come over and give us a visit. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of extended. Extended. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening, and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood. Hello, and welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I sat down with former Royal New Zealand Air Force and Air New Zealand pilot, John Denton. Listeners to the show will remember he appeared last year on the Wings Over New Zealand show when he gave a great talk about flying the de Havilland Venom with New Zealand warbirds at our 2017 Wands Christmas party. In this interview, John gives more detail to the background of his career, including his time flying in the Vietnam War. Here's the interview. Uh, where were you born? Born in Whangarei. Went to Whangarei Boys High and, uh, and left, uh, left school from there to join the Air Force. So okay. fortunate to, uh, to luck into getting uh, selected on the course, 33 course, and down to Wigram. Mm. Right. So when you were growing up in Whangarei, what was the uh, aviation scene like? Was there anything there that kind of inspired you to get into Aviation. Well, one was a, a, a mate of mine uh, who was uh, who was also dead keen, and there was Ross Lamb who subsequently went into the Air Force. And anyway, uh, I can remember a few uh, uh, high points. One was uh, a couple of mosquitoes went flashing past the windows when I was at school, primary school. You know, we would dash to the windows, and there were these two uh, screaming past. Formation of vampires that did. Uh, Aerobatics over the over the town one day, and 
once uh, there was a uh, an Aussie carrier came to town with a load of uh, sea furies and fireflies. Oh, right. So the dad took us out to the airport and we uh, we were there on the reasonably early in the morning when these things fired up and uh, departed because the, the sea furies had uh, cartridge starters so which I'd never even heard of <laughs> and uh, the, you know big bang and a puff of smoke and all these big five-bladed props started rotating and uh, off they went it was marvelous <laughs> wow so they landed on Onorahi uh, Onorahi yeah okay no strip there then just the grass yeah wow, that must have been really quite interesting oh yeah yeah, that's right. Wish I occasionally I looked it up and found out a little bit more about it, but it's a long time ago. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so, at what age did you join the Air Force? I was seventeen. Yeah. yeah. So it's pretty close to the minimum age. Was it easy to get in? No. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't exactly old for my age. I was a bit young for my age. I was very fortunate, really, that in the course that uh, had quite a few hard nuts in it and some um, various set of ages from a 17 up to 20, 28 I think it was, we had pilots, navigators, signalers on the course, 25 and um, so and some guys who were ex-corporals from the Air Force from being to Holton and so um, these guys uh, rapidly improved my practical education, <laughs> it's great, yeah, learn fast and, uh, and it was a great life. And this was all done down at Wigram? Yeah, we did six months at the as cadet pilots and then and then cadet officers after that, so you know, acting pilot officers to be honest, yeah, to be yeah. true. Now did you go straight on to the Harvard as your first uh, aircraft or did, were the Tiger Moth still around then? No, we went straight on Harvard's but we were the first course to do Harvard's and Devon's on the wings course. So it was a little bit experimental, consequently it was a bit, a little bit longer than most courses. One of the, looking back, I think one of the difficulties that they had a little bit was that most of the instructors were, uh, been on single-seaters, so their knowledge of um, instrument flying procedures and stuff like that was, they're learning about the same time as us, so I think we came out a little bit uh, a little bit light on some of that stuff, but anyway, it was was great. Right. Mm. What did you prefer, the Harvard or the Devon? Um, look, my view on aeroplanes is uh, I love them all. You know, they're all great. You know, the, to, to it's just drive them differently and, and appropriateness. And you know, I'd enjoy driving a big truck. I think just like a car, or I enjoy driving everything. And but the Harvard and the and the sort of the aerobatic side of things was marvelous. And it was uh, felt very fortunate to be on that aeroplane. Such, a, and I ended up doing quite a lot of time on that, really. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So once you completed your basic course, where yeah. did you get posted to? Well, um, I um, I just about failed my course because I failed a, a navigation exam fairly close to the final final uh, push there. So I had to reset on that and um, fortunately passed with a bit of help from my friends from uh, Swatting and what I should know, which is quite a big gap from what I did know. And consequently, I didn't pass out with a high mark or anything. And uh, I 
I went off to 42 Squadron on Harvards and Devons again and I think it was probably seen as a, a good place for me to sort of consolidate a bit which which I did. I spent quite a while there and um, enjoyed it. Uh, well, no, no, I didn't at that time. It wasn't all that long. And then about six months then I went up to um, Bristol Freighters, did a course there. Um, so that was the introduction to transport wing in those days. You did a course on the Bristol Freighter and then I went across to 40 Squadron and did uh, a course on the DC-6 and acted as a co-pilot on the DC-6 and the Hastings. You didn't need a course to to fly the Hastings, you just sat there and did what you were told. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, you didn't get much flying there. I got flying a few approaches and things like that from time to time, but never did a, a takeoff or a landing in the Hastings. Whereas in the DC-6 it was shared pretty well. Okay. So just going back to the Bristol Freighter, what did you think of that as an aircraft? Ah, oh, well, I, it was an interesting aeroplane to fly because, uh, uh, for an example, uh, one of the instructors I had, Peter Brown, who's really skillful, he could fly that thing around the base too and you could alter this, just by some very small alterations in speed, you could alter the, the drag of this thing and consequently the, um, the rate of descent. So just very small changes. A guy like Peter could um, fly around base turn without any changing the power all the way around. And uh, so uh, it's an interesting aeroplane for um, acting differently as you expose the drag to it. You expose it to drag. Mm. And um, yeah, we went up to um, uh, Norfolk Island and then to Fiji was part of the end of the course thing and we got stuck at, at uh, Norfolk Island with a fuel leak on the way back so we were there for four days so we ended up going around the island on horseback and having a good time again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exploring. Mm. So your course on the Bristol Freighter was purely flying and you weren't learning things like dropping parachutes or stuff like that? No, it was a, it was a pretty basic course um, and then you had to go away and do some more from there. That uh, So yeah, it was an introductory course for the whole of transport wing so you learned quite a bit about load and balance and all that kind of stuff there but it's all got to be specific to aeroplane anyway. Right. Yeah. Okay. And what, what are your impressions of the DC-6? Oh well, I, I thought it was very nice, you know, that thing we'd Crews usually about 16,000 or 20,000. The highest I went was 21, and it had a, a, a twin blower setup. So you start off on low blower and then it's changed to high blower at about 12,000, according to the tables. And uh, yeah, it, it got along very nicely. Uh, I think the, the best thing we did on that was exchange of battalions up in Malaya. And the whole thing was set up with uh, a slick operation, really, where uh, we had crews based at Richmond and in Sydney, and uh, Eagle Farm, Brisbane, and uh, Darwin, and Singapore. So you just got on and off you went, did your leg, you end up at the next place, and waited for another aeroplane to come around. It's good. All right. Mm. Okay. Yeah, so that went on for about a month. So, wow. Yeah.
I suppose it's quite a lot of men to shift in one go. Um, yes, yeah, it, uh, it took a while. But it was, uh, again, it was an introduction to a different way of doing things. It's my first introduction to seeing how the civil operation went a bit because when we called into Australia, the, the ANSET uh, trucks and wagons of all kinds would swarm around the aeroplane and rapidly prepare it and ready to go again. So it was impressive to me. Right. Mm. Okay. Um, and your impressions of the Hastings? Hastings, yeah. Um, it was uh, a quite heavy aeroplane to fly. You know, it's got the same wing essentially as a Halifax. Mm. Yeah. And uh, it's a bit uh, more sort of short assed because it was really designed to tow gliders. Um, yeah, so uh, quite heavyish, but. A nice aeroplane to fly otherwise uh, and of course it had uh, the engineer, the flight engineer and that was uh, sitting sideways back a bit responding to commands from the, the skipper regarding power and he had his own set of throttles and so forth back there. Uh, he could synchronise propellers by looking out the window. Um, uh, it, he is pretty much set up like the old sort of bomber I imagine back in earlier days. Uh, the, we carried a, an engine up to England, went, uh, there was a, a big trip, it took us 13 days to get up there and 13 days to get back and I had about 10 days up there I think so. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And that was a trip through the, through the Middle East so we went to, um, through Singapore as before and then from there over to Ghan on the, um, very close to the equator, a little RAF strip in the Maldive Islands, and then on to Aden where you don't sort of much go around these days. And then across, we weren't allowed to fly across Egypt. We had to go around what was called Nasus Corner, which was the southwest corner of, of Egypt. So coming up, we didn't fly very high uh, in the Hastings yeah. uh, because it wasn't pressurized and the ground level is up a bit, so marvellous uh, to observe old forts and things down below, mud forts and and uh, the Nile you could see from a long way away by the, the green band, of course, same today, but a bit closer in those days. And we had a couple of old soldiers who were on board going to reunion with the um, German paratroopers who they'd uh, met and been captured by in Crete. Yeah, so and they'd also been at Alamein, so we went up quite close to Alamein on the way to El Adam, which is in Libya. And so they were very interested to have a look and see what could be seen of the terrain. Yeah, because they wouldn't have seen it from the air before, probably. No, no, because um, from the air flattens it all out a lot. Yeah. Um, but that was uh, interesting, we stayed there. And a night or two, and then across uh, the ditch up to not not the ditch across the Mediterranean, up the coast of Italy. Um, in France, there was an air controller's strike on, so it was all uh, we just carried on as everybody else and position reported as we went and uh, exchanged information with anybody nearby. <laughs> if you didn't know who else was nearby, really. So we flew over France and ended up to landed in uh, Northolt in uh, south of London. 
and uh, had a great time and first time I was there, still a young fella in those days and that uh, was great. And the aeroplane got shifted during that time to um, Lynham, a big base up there. And we departed from, from Lynham and came basically back down through the, the same route. Okay. Yeah. Mm. So for a long trip like that, how, how many crew would you have taken with you? Well, I was the third pilot. We had uh, one captain under training, instructor, two signalers, two navigators, two quartermasters, so there's was, was a bunch of us. And uh, so it was quite social. Yeah. as well with all these guys. Some of the old old guys were um, uh, keen to uh, show me the sights. And, um, <clears throat> so it was just about the longest day when we arrived there. So they took me to a pub that night. And uh, I remember coming out about 10 o'clock or a bit after it was still daylight, which amazed me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, I guess a lot of those um, senior crew members might have gone back to the war, did they? Were there still wartime guys? Oh, yes, yes, yeah, some of them had World War Two ribbons on, that's right, yeah. So they used to tell many stories and that sort of thing? Um, no, not a, not a lot. Uh, most of the stories people tell about are about people, you know, mm. yeah. events, that sort of thing. Um, yeah, not so much of that. Um, I think most of them have been around the Pacific really rather than Europe, yeah. uh, but still some great stories. But sure. As an aside, uh, I've, have you read um, Hirohito's War? No. It's a massive book and uh, it's a fantastic book about World War Two and about the air war and, and everything about it. And okay. It goes right back to World War One history and to setting the scene of why things happened as they did. Yep. But. It was, I was absolutely amazed uh, that some of the air battles up around um, Rabaul and some of those places as big as bigger than Europe, some of them. I mean, there were 300 planes in some of those air battles yeah. up there and uh, just massive. And in New Zealand, we know nothing about that. Yeah. No? It's kind of a hidden, not exactly hidden, but... It's just forgotten. Nobody told a story, really. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I know. It's... There's so much, like all the time I'm finding stories that uh, they're not in the sort of common realm of, um, you know, our memory of World War Two. this, and probably World War One as well. Yeah. There's so much that's sort of been overlooked. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's right. See, one, one guy we had in the Air Force, uh, was, uh, I can't remember his first name, McIndoe, he was a wing commander then, but he was one of those um, Corsair pilots on that raid to... Um, to a ball that they lost about eight Corsairs. Right. Know, came back in um, bad weather at night. Yep. Some got lost. Well, some had presumed they got lost, you know, just disappeared in the Vanished. night, you know. Yeah. Turned upside down the thunderstorm or whatever, and a shocking story, really. Yeah. Yeah, awful. Yeah, I've met a few of those guys that got back. And, yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty horrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right back in the. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Who who was the CO of Ford Squadron at the time you were on there? Um, well, um, John Trollov was when I started there, and Ken Sawyer. Um, after that, so Ken was the instructor on the Hastings when I went over to UK. Right. Okay. Of course, you remember what Ken was uh, one of the pilots on that DC-8 that uh, rang down at Mangere. 
got injured on it. Yeah, probably. Mm. Okay. So, so did the squadron at that time treat the uh, the Hastings like the Hercules now, where it's sort of the utility long range aircraft, and mm. and the DC six was sort of the VIP or passenger kind of like the Boeing is now, or was it a bit different? Um. Well, the yeah it was a bit it was a bit like that. The Hastings was used as a utility, yeah. and the DC six always had seats in it. Right. About sixty sixty five, if I remember rightly. Okay. And. There were some interesting things going on. I was really in a big changeover from um, suddenly it was uh, easier to bring people out by aeroplane than by ship right. around about those days. Right. And, you know, we got pilots in Air New Zealand later who, uh, a number of them who had been junior officers on ships. Okay. Saw the, saw the change coming and decided to, uh, to change. Right. Now I had heard that. Um when Air New Zealand went to uh, putting cabin crew on, the, most of the males were ex-ship stewards as well. Yeah, yeah, great bunch of guys. Yeah, yeah, marvellous. Still see you one or two around from time to time. All oh, right. Yeah. Okay. And especially on those smaller aeroplanes, like I started on the DC-8. Yeah. Um, with the, what we have down the back? Six, I think. Six or eight. Okay. And uh, those smaller crews, you know, we can do a lot together and, yeah. and uh, very social, right? Okay. A lot of fun. Mm. Cool. Mm. Uh, one of those, uh, one of the old guys on the, who was captain in those days, was a uh, uh, Jack Shorthouse. You've probably heard about and read about him. He was decorated uh, bomber pilot, became oh, prisoner of war, and so forth. Mm. Yeah, yeah, certainly. Great guy. I've read about him. I never got to meet him. Yeah, nice fella. Yeah. Mm. Uh, did you, when you were with the transport wing, did you ever fly the DC-3 as well, uh, C-47? I, fl uh, I spent a bit of time, to, I went back to 42 Squadron for a while and I, f I flew the deck a bit then, but uh, whenever I was at 42 Squadron, you're always available as a co for the DC-3. Okay. So um, it was a very comfortable old ship to tool around on. Uh, we did used to do some navigation exercise out in the Chathams and across to... Uh, Christchurch and back all in the dead of night. You can sit there and hear the ice rattling off the prop against the, the fuselage and nice and warm inside and uh, you know, very capable ships you just kept on chugging along. Yeah. It's great. But were they similar uh, to fly with the Hastings? I always thought the Hastings looked like a big DC-3, you know, like a... Yeah, yeah, well it's, it's similar in that um, uh, in a turn, you know, quite quickly got quite heavy on the controls, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, in that respect, uh, yeah, incidentally, I saw a Hastings recently uh, in Berlin, they've gone at the um, Combined Services, no, at the um, this little museum of the um, Brits, the French and the Americans. Oh, right. With a Hastings, probably C2 there. Mm. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Like, unfortunately, I couldn't get on it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, I've seen one in at Duxford. They had one at Duxford when I was there years ago. Oh yes. Yeah. Great shame they cut them up here. Stupid. Yeah. Really. Yeah. Mm. But then again, they couldn't really do anything else in those days. So. No. Well, if they preserved the front end or something like that. Would have well, there is the front end at Motat. So. Yeah. Yeah. And the engines and the wheels or something. Yeah. <laughs> 
you probably could restore the rest of it if you had the money, but mm. but yeah, yeah, who would? Um, so how long were you with Transport Wing then, in, to in total? Um, I think I went to uh, to Vampires at 65 or 67, uh, 65 I must have, then I went to 67 I think to, to Wigan as an instructor, okay. co instructor course, a couple of years there. Um, came back and when I got back I uh, some vampires again for a short time and then off to Vietnam Okay. in uh, 1970, April 1970. While I was away the, um, the Skyhawks arrived so we you know, didn't hear a bit of news about them and see the pictures of them arriving coming down the, down the road all wrapped in their cocoons. You may have heard a story about uh, a guy, um, Callanan, uh, I can't just think of his first name, who he was, he went aboard the American carrier that brought them over. Yep. And uh, he told us that uh, they very nearly got pushed over the side because of a big storm on the way over. I have heard that. Was it Mike Callanan? Mike Callanan, yeah, yeah. yeah, that's right, since yeah. deceased, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I mean, that would have just been such a disaster for New Zealand, wouldn't it? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> ship steams in, where's our ship, where's our plane? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm, doesn't bear thinking about, really. <laughs> no, no, that's right. Yeah. So I'll just take you back to when you uh, left the transport wing and went to the vampires. Tell me yeah. about the sort of the transition and, and progressing into jets. Yeah, well, I'd been... Um, I've been in the next hangar along in 42 squadrons from Jets. A lot of my um, mates on uh, Anahakia were on the, on the Jets. It was around about that time uh, Brian Stanley Hunt was uh, the CO and he was uh, he's very good with those guys and they turned them into a fine bunch of young uh, fellows and pilots and good guys all around. So they lead a great life and... Uh, and uh, my friends, I was really pleased to join them when my opportunity came to, to go across to them. And memories of the vampire, well, you had to be careful with it starting and um, and careful to keep the speed right on approach. Because you're normally doing glide approach from a formation landing. You know, the, and the engine acceleration was poor. Right. And if you let the revs get down too low or... Or, or if you had to normally write down anyway, you had to allow space if you decided you want to go around. Right. Otherwise, um, engine accelerations just wasn't going to happen. It was um, pretty early technology engine, and um, they got better. But yeah, got to work with what you got. <laughs> yeah. Right. And did you enjoy the? Uh sort of um, flying by yourself rather than having a crew? I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed all of sort of say. Um, I must say, one of, one of the things that came back to me when I started flying with Air New Zealand that, that was that uh, in the crewed operation, we're working together under supervision and so on, it became pretty apparent to me uh, in the number of errors that were, you know, attributable to myself that... Uh, Probably be making the same number of errors in, the, in a single seater, but you know the airplane designed to cope 
and that sort of thing and, and good design and but in the crude operation it's very good to have a, have that follow up really. Yeah. 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 Mm. Well obviously in your training you would have done a bit of weapons training on the Harvards I guess. Uh, no we didn't do any weapons training on the Harvard. We um, so first I did really was on the on Vampire. Right. And that was really good with the range, it was very close out at Raumati, very close to a haki, a few minutes flying away. And you know, weapons flying it's great, great sport really, good fun. Um, and but lots of easy, not as easy as it looks, mm. you know, to um, to get a decent sort of a score. Yeah. We did a lot on on, on the vampires. We did, did a lot of uh, ear to ear with a bit of uh, cine film, uh, and you know that shows you how easy it isn't as well, you know. Yeah. But that was, uh, we would usually um, go up to wherever we were going, uh, altitude, and um, get split, split head off in different directions, 45 degree split or a 90 degree split. And if we're on a, just doing it by ourselves, it'd be a time, after a time, turn in, and away you went. Or otherwise, it was a radar uh, would direct, in which case it's a bit less predictable. Right. <laughs> you know, where to look. Yeah. But that was uh, that was a lot of fun too, and uh, and interesting. Yeah. So uh, you were um, doing rocket training. Yeah, we did. Um, yeah, we had the four uh, forty twenty million uh, cannon, Hispano cannon, and normal load would be two hundred rounds, uh, two guns. So normally hundred rounds per gun. Right. and gives you a bit longer firing time and of course you don't need four guns for target practice <laughs> yeah. so yeah we did 60 degree dive bombing and and uh, shallow angle um, bombing and rocketing rocketing is probably more fun than anything really <laughs> and a lot of fun also was that we're doing a, a, a cross country to um, hit a target on time to normal flight low level on the vampires only about 50 minutes unless you had tanks on mm -hmm. and so cross country nav uh, of an hour 50 minutes depending on whether you went up or down and um, turn up on time to fire a rocket so and very competitive amongst the guys here yeah. did you do much in the way of uh, aerobatic type stuff with uh, like team aerobatic yes yeah I was uh, fortunate to be there when they had an aerobatic team so we had various leaders Larry Olson and um, Colin Rudd were the leaders and Angus Kingsmill um, myself uh, Larry and other names too I apologise I can't remember them that's right them right yeah. now but <clears throat> Uh, you know that was uh, very fortunate because it's sort of once you can do it you can teach it and you can do it in other aeroplanes and uh, it becomes part of your repertoire sort of thing yeah your skill set yeah, yeah exactly so, so yeah, what we did displays all over the place um, New Plymouth and opening of the airport strip at Hamilton and so forth 
Yeah, now mum and dad were at that. <laughs> and they said that the vampires came in from behind the um from behind yeah. the main thing and scared the crap out of everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well it's probably Larry Olson it wasn't Larry Olson then yet. Graham Lloyd was another member. Yep. Uh and no, that's not quite right. He was on Canberra's by then. He, we, I was there with him in Harvard later. Um, Larry Olson was uh, was our leader then. He was a local boy. Right. Yeah, so uh, we stayed out at Tirapa and uh, went into the, I think we went to Hero Club that night for a do. Mm. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Brilliant. So, mm. so that would be 1966, I guess, that... That, I think they have to be around here somewhere, yeah. 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 Um, what position did you fly in the team? Uh, I flew three. Mm. Okay. Yeah. And it was, it was a four ship then, eh? Yeah. 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 But in the, in the Howards, I flew two, three, four, and five. In the Warbirds, I flew two, three, four, five. Occasionally leader. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm. Right. So when you went from the vampires to uh, Wigger, did you were going to CFS to become an instructor? Yes. Yeah. 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 So we did uh, as a six month course, and interesting um, for the amount of um, putting a bit of precision in your life. Because one of the things about formation flying is is terminology. You know, if it's, if you say uh, move up a bit, a lot of people don't mean as you mean. They want you to go forward, but really up is up. Right. And it's all relative to the aeroplane plane. So if you're upside down, up means up, up means up. <laughs> um, up in the direction of the in the plane of the aeroplane, yeah. <laughs> so stuff like that for uh, instructing was, was interesting. Yeah. We had a couple of Malaysians on our course down there. Um, and Ron Campbell, who later became the air traffic controller. Mm. Okay. Uh, so once you had become an instructor, where did you then go? I then went to PTS, which was um, the next hangar down. Yep. And spent two years, most enjoyable two years there because uh, all the instructors that were there were all, were all good friends, good mates, and lived on the base or close to it. So it's very social and the flying was good. You know, worked hard, do up to well, sometimes eight sorties a day. That sort of stuff. So. Wow, that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 working hard, but um, yeah, great lifestyle, good fun, good good flying, and of course you learn a lot about flying from teaching, mm. just like anything else really. As I found with a simulator instructor later on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do. You actually pick up stuff, so much yeah. more stuff when you're teaching someone else yeah, than exactly. you do when you're learning. Yeah, you have to learn it because people ask you all these questions about. <laughs> Exactly. And then you have to go away and think about it. So, oh, so that's how that works. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. Okay. Um, and then you said from there you went to um, Vietnam. Yeah, well, actually, um, you came back on Vampires. Back on Vampires. Vampires for a little time as flight commander there. And well, it's 75. 75, yeah. Some of that is I'm not sure which is which because the name sort of titles change a little bit from time to time around there. Yeah. So, so I was on 14 for a bit there because 74 75 became the Skywalk Squadron. Right. And 14 then was became the, after the Canberra became the 
training and that's right. Mm. Yep. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I went to Vietnam. Now, how did that come about? Well, uh, one day uh, I was down the mess at at um, at Wigram and um, Chuck McAllister was there from um, personnel. And he said uh, I'd had a couple of beers. Time to go home for dinner, and uh, he said I'll walk across with you. Okay. And then, of course, the panic is still getting dark, as I recall. Um, he said, we think you're sending you to Vietnam in um, April next year. What do you think about that? And I said, well, I obviously previously thought about it. And I said, well, I've, I've taken the shilling, so uh, I'm happy to go. You know? yeah. <laughs> so, um, and we were fortunate in uh, a couple of years before that to get plenty of feedback from the guys who been before from Scrimshaw and Ewing yeah. progressively onwards and uh, get a fair idea of what was going on and do some preparation. It already helped us with the training to go up there and what we were doing and that was the idea really to get feedback into what we were doing, keep up to date. Yeah, yeah so, um, so I was assigned to uh, 2nd Tactical Air Force if I remember rightly, 75th um, tactical Air Support Group, and then I worked on the 119th, 120th support, Tactical Support Squadrons. Did my training uh, uh, at Danang on the OV-10. I was fortunate to uh, have the OV-10s available on a, when I was there. Mm -hmm. And uh, my instructor up there was, um, was a Voodoo pilot, 101 pilot. Which is a heck of a nice guy, so very interested to uh, find out from him uh, about his life and and uh, voodoo's. And they, of course, they had some cruising around there as well. They were uh, reconnaissance, and so if they're cruising around, they're often taking pictures, and they they didn't move out of the way for anybody. So uh, you got out of the way, and it's a sleek big airplane. Yeah. And, uh, um, so. Uh, yeah, we did. We learnt the aeroplane quite quickly, and then we did uh, some tactical stuff, and we did the weapon stuff on it. Um, just describe the aircraft. Oh yeah, sure. Yeah, it's um, okay. It was the winner of the counterinsurgency aeroplane competition in the sixties, and it had uh, two seats, two Garrett turbo props, seven hundred and fifteen shaft horsepower. Uh, it had a pod with two booms, high tail plane, and a pod which allegedly you could carry six paratroopers in, and you could definitely carry 28 cases of Victoria Bitter. <laughs> we used to go down to Bunk Town and take one down because I was domiciled with some Aussies and I, who were on the same outfit that I was on, and we would go down to the quartermaster stores down there and pick up whole carcasses of. Uh, lamb or sheep and this and that and uh, carve them up at back at the base and stick them in our freezers. We had about three decent freezers. We had uh, barbecue just about every night. Sometimes we went to the local uh, mess there but uh, most of the time we, we barbecued. So it's uh, some of the time, uh, of course some of the time we got a bit of the monsoon there as well and so uh, not too good for barbecues but 
So the, in the weapons training, um, I remember that uh, we loaded up with some flares to do some night rocketing practice up a little island off the off the coast, and took off and went there and. Uh, for some reason, I don't know, still don't know why the flares weren't armed or whatever. Um, flares didn't work. So, and the major, American major in the back seat with me said, oh, he's not too sure about this. He said, uh, how do you feel about uh, doing it out without the illumination? I said, yeah, <laughs> have it have a go. So we could see, dimly see this place <laughs> in the dark. So we did, uh, did the rocketing without the... Uh, any flares and uh, it was uh, quite spectacular really because you'd roll in on this thing and fire your rockets off and there's, uh, there's a shower of sparks and <laughs> sun, sun red lights and the uh, and the, uh, the fumes used to come in through the little ventilator we had a little pop-up ventilator thing in the in the top and you might get the occasional spark through as well yeah wow. smell of uh, Burning stuff, it's good stuff. <laughs> and then we, um, so from there we went back to the Tacan approach, meant to fly the Tacan approaches. Well, can you explain that? Uh, right, so Tacan will give you a radial and, and distance, a bearing and distance on a on a, a ground aid. And um, I had fortunate that uh, uh, Bruce Johnson here was on. on uh, Hercules was a, a friend of mine. Uh, he gave me a bit of a wise up on navigation. You can do a rule of thumb navigation on your instruments in the cockpit to help you with this. But <clears throat> so to navigate on um, using the, that, you would um, you'd use an arc from a station. You could fly an arc, say a thirty mile arc on the station, and then turn in to join for a GCA or whatever was up, <clears throat> and. So you learn quite quickly, it's not as hard as it sounds mm -hmm. and we would also meet the fighters, um, fighter ground attack aeroplanes in the same technique, they would come out of one of the fighter bases and we would nominate a place for them to meet because we had charts with, um, uh, we'd overlaid with Chinagraph pencils, the arc and distances from all these stations, so wherever we were you could nominate so you would meet you on the 260 at 50 miles out of, um, I don't know, Danang or somewhere. Yeah. And they'd turn up over the top, about 20,000 feet usually, something like that. And you could give them a brief up top where they're just tooling around quietly, um, um, saving gas until the um, event was all ready to go. You'd talk to the army, got, a, got things marked, wherever you were guys when you could bring the fighters down and uh, uh, show them where the friendlies were, get them to pop smoke for them and uh, put them in on the target. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So what sort of altitude were you normally flying when you went in on the target? Uh, well we were supposed to stay above 1500 feet but we, I think most of us usually went down around about, I don't know, probably down 600 or so on the dive, the theory being that small arms, anything below a 50 calibre, uh, was notoriously uh, proven to be 
inaccurate yeah. the, because the gravity drop got so um, above about 1300 feet so 1500 feet was a, the Americans not below altitude made a lot of sense you know you use um, mathematically uh, proven best way to do it right. and they did have bigger weapons around they had to a few 20 millimeters around further north and um, 50 caliber sights and they were if you got one of those you'd be sorry yeah. mm. okay. it's, a, it's a pretty big bullet 50 caliber sure is you know I watched a um, I had went to a bit of an Audie Murphy show once there was a um, some guys were, f were firing from a, a tank 50 caliber down in the vicinity and I said oh I see so and so down the, about a kilometre down the road and I said that's he said that's uh, that's just a ricochet from the tank you know this these 50 caliber is hitting just still got a lot of power a kilometre or so away and still going far yeah wow yeah that's amazing there's a big round going very fast you know real high mu muzzle velocity yeah wow mm. yeah now, you mentioned that the Bronco is two-seater, and um, did you have a regular crew member with you? No, we only had another crew member at night normally, or training. But if you had a uh, if you had a night mission, which was pretty rare for us, then you had a guy in the back, and he handled the radios and a bit of the navigation, which left you really um, the pilot flying uh, freedom to keep his... Uh, Good idea. Which way's up? Right. Yeah. <laughs> so stop some of the distraction and you. Yeah, that's right. So it unloads them a bit. Yeah. But it was um. It was uh, interesting, and one night I was uh, just tooling around, and um, had I I had a as we often had something to fire out on if you want a bit of practice or something like that, and uh, you could see what you're doing because we had um, four seven point six two. Um, guns and they we usually fire them in pairs, selectable in pairs, and every fifth round was a tracer, so you can see where they're going. The, the tracer bullets drop a bit more than the uh, the non-tracer, so um, if the tracer's dropping a little below your target, you're probably pretty close. Okay. Yeah. Why why do they drop? More than the ones of that uh, I, sus I suspect it uh, affects the weight of them, you know, the added yeah. um, compound that they put in there is probably a bit lighter. Right, okay. Mm. I didn't know that before. That's quite yeah. interesting. Mm. That's actually really interesting because I've talked to some guys who sit in the desert uh, during World War Two. They the Germans used to set uh, the MG42s up just on a fixed thing and just fire it and you could see the lines and they'd go and step over it. Oh right, yeah. and so if they're watching the tracer, yep. then that was what you're saying is that the, the bullet might have been even <laughs> higher than. Yeah, that's, right. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, they might have been not might not have been quite true for their uh, for their weapons or their ammo, but yeah, true. Certainly, that's what we were advised. Anyway. Plus, also they were firing level, so yeah. it might be a bit different there. But <laughs> I was I was on the ground up there on the night of the fourth of July, and everybody in the army all around our little. Uh, Airbase at Coochie let rip this coloured stuff, all different colours fly it all around the sky. Not a good night to be flying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
So tell me about the squadron or squadrons that you were on there. Um, how big were they? And okay, so um, so big squadrons. You know, uh, they have up to one hundred and twenty aeroplanes, um, and they were aeroplanes were detached all over the place. Okay. Uh, and so nominally we were flying for an army unit. On uh, from the first part, I was flying for a second brigade of the twenty um, fifth infantry division. Up in um, north of where the Aussies were, and uh, they were down in Town, We had a bit further north than that. Um, sorry, where were we? Were? Uh, uh, <laughs> just talking about how the the squadron was dispersed. Oh yeah, and... yeah. Okay, so uh, so uh, so then the army, the brigade would have uh, probably about six. Aeroplanes normally allocated, depending on okay. you know, at Coochie there's probably about 10 aeroplanes. Okay. And, um, and would, they all, would they all be Broncos? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so um, each brigade would cover its own area sort of daylight hours. Right. So that's about four flights. And uh, you just look at the roster and say, I'm going on the three to six or something, whatever it was. And usually, Grab your nav bag or your maps and stuff, going to see the uh, the army with big charts out there in their tactical air centre, tactical command centre, pardon me, and see where the action was, whether they had troops in contact or not, um, what was happening, if they had a um, fight going on out there or they had some pre-planned targets for you. Uh, if you get all that stuff and then head off grab a jeep from uh, outside and carried a uh, just padlocked so unlocked and off you go and park it on the flight line go to your airplane sign for it and off you go okay. and, <clears throat> and so in that particular area of operation you had about a 20 minute flight time to where you started work, but on the way you had to go through all the various artillery and stuff. That, so you, the artillery artillery areas were divided up on a different basis, so you had to talk to each one on the way this before you the, got there. Uh, this is American artillery. Yeah, 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 and and um, ask them what was going on. You say where you're going from to, and they say we've got. We got the long shorts from six four oh one to uh, to six three six six, the long skinnies to so on and so forth. So they the describe the guns in this way, and they say where they're going from and where they're going to. Okay. And they say well, it might be up to five thousand feet. Yeah. Uh, and so you you sort of plotted plotted that on your map mentally as you and went around that stuff on your way there. Occasionally, uh, the navy would be um, shelling from offshore, and if they had a, uh, a battleship or something out off there, their shells went up to twenty six thousand feet. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So if you you know the if they told you something going up that high, that oh, there's a there's a ship off the coast here. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. 
So when you uh, would go off on one of these missions, is that because the army up on the front line has called you in, or, or would you also do just regular patrols looking for something? Yeah, we're regular patrol out there, yeah. So we would handle all sorts of stuff for them, do radar, radio relay or um, um, bit of reconnaissance. Or, um, um. So there'd generally be at least one of you guys flying in the air at any yeah. given time, so that they, if they need you, they can call you in, That's and, you're, right. and you're there. Okay. That's right. Yeah. So, um, airplane could go quite quickly, about two fifty knots, if you wanted it to. But we used to loiter around doing most of the stuff at one hundred and twenty knots. Okay. Just it's a bit sloppy at that speed, but it's fine. Yep. And we always carried a standard load of the rockets. We had sixteen marking rockets, Willie Pete's, and sixteen. Um, HE rockets. The HE rockets are a bit smaller head than than was available, but they're handy for what we did. Okay. Now, when you use the marking rockets, that was to mark a target for other bombers to come in. Yeah, it? that's right. So we so the you establish contact with the guys on the ground, and um, he would tell you what his problem was. And then there's a whole ring roll of uh, things you needed to, to work through, which became, in short order, just easy to do. You just rattle through it yep. because he knows what you're talking about, what you want. And you quickly work out a, a, a profile for the for the aeroplanes, depending on what the threat was and that sort of thing. There's not much threat around. You could run them on a race course pattern. Yep. If there's a bit more of a threat around the place, you would... Um, have a bit more random pattern and depending on their weapons of course too so <clears throat> so there's some they would have um, most common stuff was uh, um, 250 pound bombs um, slicks or high drag snake eyes and uh, quite a lot of napalm too right so they tell you what they got wall-to-wall -wall nape or, um, <coughs> or a snake and nape <laughs> um, <coughs> when they turned up and um, accordingly um, once you, uh, you, you, you then when everybody's happy and you identified the friendlies before hopefully and you know every, where everybody is if you needed to you could show the, the guys on the ground where they were by getting them to pop smoke but you normally wouldn't need to do that because you probably you'd previously done all that for yourself, so yep. and they, you're running the the air well clear of them. And so you you pop mark in and say, uh, um, generally using about 20, 30 degree dive, something like that. And the, um, the benefits of the the, the Willie Peak rockets are spin stabilised. And, but the HEs weren't, so you know, they're a bit random. They had a, quite a um, spread to them. You could fire two, two HEs and they'd go in different directions, but yeah. Mm. So you, not a bad thing, it's giving you a scatter effect a bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, but not so good if you're trying to hit something. <laughs> <laughs> With only one or two rockets, you'll fire two rockets. Yeah. yeah. Um, so what what were the aircraft that normally came in after you had? Um, well, we had we worked a lot uh, with um, A thirty sevens, the um, 
um, what do they call that dragonfly. dragonfly yep. yep. And uh, out of the um, out of uh, Saigon, they had uh, the ramrods, which flying F one hundreds, and um, it was just great looking ship in the air. You see, at the slower speeds, it's nose up in the air a little bit, but right. you know, it's quite sharky looking. Yeah. <laughs> and they would they would do level bombing sometimes. Those guys occasionally you got the Aussie Canberras, um, and then later on. Uh, Particularly up north, we had uh, F4s, and um, uh, which carried a big load. And the mostly Mark 82s, which are the, the 250-pound bombs. Sometimes you get something bigger, 500, 750. Mm. Okay. So did you get to uh, mix with those guys at all? Did, were any of them based where you were based? And that's well, um, we met more probably at uh, after up around Dunang. It's, um, Go to the officers' club up there. Right. It's called the Danang Open Officers Mess, which abbreviated as the Doom Club. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it was a wild place, you know. So a lot of did, did wild stuff and good stuff. They good shows on, all sorts of stuff. Okay. Anyway, that was a, yeah. So yeah, yeah, you meet uh, meet all sorts of people up there, sort of navy people coming and going, and and uh, a lot of people, interesting people to meet up there, special forces and and so on. Because we did, uh, I got set up to do some stuff with the rangers, for, but it never actually happened. But the there were a lot of uh, sensors dropped on the trails, and uh, one of the plans that the rangers had was that when the sensors told them that something was coming down one of these tracks, you know, they were like listening sensors mm -hmm. and so on, yeah. and they were dead keen to uh, capture some of the bad guys. And this particular guy had done three tours up there and was mad as a snake. He said uh, <clears throat> when they found something like this, he, wanted, he, would, uh, he would call me and get me to um, throw a mark in. And the idea was that these guys would get uh, surprised and sort of uh, spread out or hide or something like that, and the uh, the rangers would capture one in the shamozzle that was going on. Never actually happened. It's probably a good thing because he said he said, um, well, um, uh, actual mechanism of where he was going to be and how he was going to find it was a bit mysterious. Basically, he wanted me to fire at uh, where he was, and uh, he would make sure he didn't get hit. So yeah, it's pretty risky business. But sure. it's all uh, covered in the, you know, it's all a lot of jungle, and so that was the idea. Yeah. I know that usually the RNZF pilots went over in pairs. Yeah. Did you go as a pair? Yes, yeah, so I went with Jeff Wallingford. Who, who, I've seen a bit of lately. Yeah, around okay. here. Yeah. And did he stay on your unit, or was he? No, else? he was. Um, he was about five hundred miles away. All oh, right. Mm -hmm. What was he flying? He was flying OB ten also. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And later on, I moved up a bit closer to that. I worked out of Chulai, which was a marine base, twin parallel runways, um, right by the beach, further north. Beautiful beach, and and our accommodation was. 
You're 100 metres from the beach, you go out for a swim. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, so, yeah, so a lot of marine operations out of here, but, and us as well. And it's quite a busy place. So, all uh, different aeroplanes and choppers and so on stacked at different heights around there to come and go. Right. But it all worked very well. Mm. Mm. Overall, did you enjoy flying the OV 10 as an aircraft? Yeah, I did. I did. I mean, as I say, they all have their different characteristics, you know. Um, but it was a, it was a clever aeroplane. They, um, it had things, good things like self-sealing tanks. The bank seats were interesting. They, uh, each one was slightly angled. One went out slightly one way and one the other. Oh. Um, they found the wings were a bit short on them. They, uh, before they actually issued them, they had about another five feet on each side, I think it was. Uh, but they were, you could get them down in the circuit really quickly if you stuck it, you know, pulled them, sucked it into a turn a bit and pulled all the power off the, the drag from the props. And then, because a lot of the wing was in the prop wash, um, so it's unusual in that if you wanted to do a tighter loop, you put power on, or as most conventional airplanes like a vampire say, if you want to do a tighter loop at the bottom, you take power off. Right. Yeah. Interesting. This thing would, uh, uh, if, and it may have been the cause of a couple of guys who got killed up there doing aerobatics. They might have got a bit of fright close to the gun down, close to the ground, and pulled the power off. Possibly, who knows? But uh, they uh, bit the dust. Mm. Wow. Okay. Uh, were they quite noisy having the big? Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Quite noisy. That's right. I know. And uh, but terrific visibility because. Uh, the glass house bulged out either side of the, uh, the fuselage, so you could, uh, it didn't need much of a bank on the aeroplane, you could be seeing out the other side of the aeroplane, which is sort of technique used to use yeah. sometimes to see if there's anybody sort of coming out to move when they think you weren't looking, you know. <laughs> but it's a good idea to keep moving anyway, um, you can fly in a straight line up there. Yeah. You get stitched up by one of these 50 calibers that used to. I reckon there was one up in the big Michelin plantation up there that uh, can be wheeled out, particularly when there's nasty weather and the planes come down a bit lower. And, uh, right. So they uh, would uh, start firing this thing behind you and walk it down through the fly of the aeroplane. If you're flying a straight line, you're open to that sort of thing a bit. Yeah. Mm. Wow. But the the OV-10 uh, almost sort of became forgotten for a long time but now they seem to be in favour again and they're using them again over in Syria. Oh really? Mm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I've also heard mm. I've read. Yeah. yeah I think they got the warthog because of the it's good in the high threat operation moving a bit faster and yeah. so on but in the low threat area um, the OV-10 was good. You wouldn't want it around if they had too many um, stingers or other short range ground to Air missiles. Yeah. Um, Did you ever have anything like that fight at you? Well, um, there was a bit of um, controversy about people getting funny dings on aeroplanes and things like that. One Aussie guy over there thought he might have had something shot at him, but you know, fleeting glimpses, you don't know enough, mm. you can't really say. Yeah. Because mm. they're not really going to fire when you're looking at them usually. Right. Yeah. 
what about also the the country itself, um, like the different uh, sort of uh, climate and and atmosphere must have been a, a bit to get used to flying in, was it, or being tropical? No, very hot, very mm. hot, but a beautiful country. And quite a uh, quite a range of terrain, you know, from the, the red earth flatlands down around the coast, beautiful beaches and... Um, and the dry season, really dry and dusty, and the wet season, very heavy rain sometimes, big monsoon ditches around the place, around the airfield and duckboards. Make sure you stay on the duckboard so you fall in a big hole. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah so you be a bit careful with the weather, but well, it's well-equipped aeroplane for uh, aids and so forth, and really our um, service base was Benoit, so if you have an aeroplane problem, uh, you dropped in there and, uh, and um, had it fixed. Or, okay. And uh, I, I will tell a, tell a little story there that um, I had to drop an aeroplane in there one night and it turned out they couldn't fix a problem in the time available, so they sent off uh, a, an aeroplane from my home base, Coochie. To pick me up, and uh, this guy Ken Semler came in, the Aussie guy, and uh, and I jumped on board and away we went. Said hello to him and stuck my nav bag down in the map bag down in the, in the corner. And unbeknownst to me, we'd established communication, so that was all right. But I and putting this thing down, I'd uh, put it on a, a lead, and it popped the. Um, Popped the lead out for my uh, microphone right. from the plug. So from there on, I wasn't talking to anybody. I certainly wasn't hearing from from him. So it's a silent trip. And uh, about a halfway there, which is only about a, a thirty mile flight, um, somebody started popping off at us with this uh, uh, fifty caliber, I presume. It's a big red golf ball sort of going just off to my left. Uh, um, it seemed, I don't know, it's a long time ago, it seemed at the time, you know, it was pretty close inside the wing, but it's probably, I don't know. Anyway, so I got on the mic and I was saying, <laughs> the guy in the front. <laughs> and uh, in um, fairly coarse language, you might say. <laughs> and... Um, and the aeroplane just keeps steaming straight along, straight ahead. Well, it's only a matter of a few seconds anyway. But, yeah. but I thought, what the hell's going on? And I didn't realise till later, you see, this plug had come out, so he didn't hear a word. He just kept driving on. Even though he never saw this, what's happening just behind him. Wow. <laughs> and when we arrived there, they, um, the thunderstorm was something had knocked out the something had knocked out the runway lights. So the so we had to land by the light of a couple of uh, jeeps, shine the light down the runway. So all in all, it was an eventful day, <laughs> and uh, I enjoyed uh, buying my beer later and saying, uh, "Thanks for saving my ass from that gun." <laughs> you didn't see. <laughs> if I had my wits about me, of course I sure would have done something with a stick myself. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At least you never know.
Um, so did you guys all, uh, the the pilots, all live communally, uh, like in barracks, or...? Yeah, we had, um, we had a, um, they uh, were good uh, barracks buildings, few, lived in a few different ones. First one I was in, had a, uh, had a brick wall up to about um, waist height, which is just as well, because it had a rocket attack the night before, there's a burnt out rocket head uh, in the yard sort of thing but the idea was that uh, if there's something like that happening you get on the ground uh, because the lower wall would uh, save you from that but the, the higher bit is going to come straight through right. but uh, and most of the time I had a um, room on my own and uh, where I was most longest time I was an air conditioner shoved in the window been stolen by the Air Force from the Army and uh, <laughs> and it just uh, gave constant noise. It was the same day on a day out and all night, you wouldn't know. Yeah. But the accommodation was good, it's not too hot, it's cool, and um, we've, as I say, we've mostly fed ourselves. And, and uh, we had a little, uh, little bar and um, in there, a fridge full of beer. If you wanted something harder, there was uh, the um, PX was cheap, and uh, it's a good life. Yeah. Used to make uh, um, um, used to make a, a, a drink with a, uh, a blender, can of pineapple juice, and uh, half a bottle of um, Bacardi. Oh, yeah. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> the pineapple went in frozen, so they broke a blender eventually. When it, so it was definitely cold. <laughs> yeah. All right. When it came time to end your tour, how, how long is the tour? Six months normally, yeah. Yeah. And when you came back, was it hard to adjust back to sort of normal life? or? Um... No, not really. Um, but um, it was pretty straightforward and pretty easy because it's surrounded by all back to normal, so I didn't have trouble with that. But I would say it definitely was a bit changed by the whole experience, you know. Your, your view has become that much broader. Yeah. And uh, I resolved never to let small stuff worry me again, is <laughs> I told people subsequently, uh, if, you, if you're being shot at, that's serious, most other stuff doesn't matter too much. <laughs> you know, um, it's a little bit like that, not like you're being shot at a lot or something, but um, it's, it gives you a new perspective what's important at life, what's, what's uh, and so, um, and broaden my horizons and uh, uh, yeah, so it was. It wasn't a bad experience for me. It was a formative experience. Yeah. Um, enjoyable. I, of course, I missed my family and all that sort of stuff, as everybody does. But um, were you married at the time? Yeah, I had um, uh, married and uh, one child at that time. Yeah. That must have been quite hard to be away for so long. Well, for, hard, for both of you. Hard for them, yeah. But yeah. I mean, that's. 
Uh, yeah. So we regularly sent messages between us and that sort of thing. Tapes. Yeah. First thing I sent back was a little tape recorder and uh, from Singapore, which came through on the way up there. And so it's uh, friendly voices and corresponded with my my dad and uh, mum and so forth. And um, yeah, the communication was was pretty good. They send up little few stonies from time to time or whatever <laughs> for a bit of local you know flavour and things. And so it was um, and working with the Aussies was good. And I, I enjoyed the Aussies too, the uh, the Americans. Uh, and being with that different culture for a while, mm. Mm. Yeah. see how they live. Yeah. Mm. Now, you mentioned your dad, had he been in World War Two? Um, he never went offshore in World War Two. he was in the army. Oh yeah. 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 So he had a bit of an idea of what your life was like, but not quite going to war sort of thing. I'll, I'll tell you another story for the record, and that was that... Um, when I was born, um, my father came up to the hospital under armed guard. <laughs> He'd been arrested because uh, I was, uh, I was, my mum was about due to go in the hospital, which happened. And my father and was in camp up at uh, Hickerangi or Kamo up north. And uh, the guys were told they're confined to camp and the rumour went round that they're going offshore tomorrow and they weren't getting home to say hello to mum or bye, bye to mum. So they um, they had a minor mutiny. My my dad was a sergeant, and uh, so um, uh, so he got arrested along with many others. And uh, and uh, as hap with happens with these things, and it all was stormed teacup, you know. So he was up there in under armed guard. The next day. Uh, it was all over, but uh, the guys in this platoon took up a, a collection, which I got on my um, um, 21st birthday from my dad, and a little envelope was written on the back for the boy whose father wasn't a piker. <laughs> 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 so, um, yeah, we have another story. Brilliant. Yeah. Brilliant. yeah. So how much longer... Um, were you in the Air Force? Did, did you go on to the Skyhawks? Yes, I did. did? Yeah, I went on to Skyhawks and uh, shortly after converting, I went to 14 Squadron to run the training flight over there. So we... With the Skyhawk on? Yes. Okay. Yeah, and run the training flight with the Skyhawks and Vampires. Strike Masters went far away. Yep. And... So, and sometimes there was a course and we had, so we had normal, nominally two Skyhawks available for 14 Squadron, but okay. um, they were on the line at 75, next hangar over, and some of the time there was no course in at all, so you just rang them the day before as a courtesy and said, uh, we'd like one or two Skyhawks if we could tomorrow, just for a, might be probably low priority, um, practice mission or something like that and, uh, and it's usually no problem. Okay. Yeah. So you'd have your two Skyhawks, you and another instructor I guess, would you ever have a bit of a dogfight with the the others? Um, um, not, a, not that so much, but we did do um, we did do a bit of that. Um, the most uh, memorable I think was we went up to Singapore once with, uh, we took 
can't remember now. I think yeah, it took, I think we took eight. Might have been more. Yeah. And um, we had a, a planned dogfight with um, the Singaporean hunters. Oh right. Mm. All of which I remember not much. It's just one of those things flashing past. That uh, <laughs> it was the closing speed was so high. It was just that, just a jolly flash. Really, and um, that's all I saw of it. Really, <laughs> did anybody come up as the winner, or was no. it was it just really just? Uh, I think some some of them, somebody, one of them claimed somebody shot down, but we never saw any proof or anything. Yeah, like that. Yeah, like yeah. that's what real combat's like too. From what I hear, it's just so quick and over with. Yeah, yeah. In, in most cases, and at those speeds, in a few seconds, you're miles away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I did do an inch. I did time up there. The was the time of the uh, big smoke, big burn offs over in the neighbouring islands, and the smoke had drift down the visibility pretty low. We did a, a navex up to a place called Kwantan up the coast of Malaysia. Mm -hmm. Two skyhawks didn't get away. Um, out of the four that's supposed to go, and so only two of us ended up there. And uh, but that was that was in the sort of low visibility. It was a really sort of memorable trip. Quite a long range, low level, tooling around the ranges and valleys. And visibility not always very good. Right. Yeah. So those trips up to um, Malaysia was that with seventy five or was that still with seventy five? Yeah, yeah, it was seventy five. Okay. Because yeah. the. I'm not entirely certain of this, but I think the the Skyhawk element of 14 Squadron didn't really last that long, did it? It's really just until the Blunties turned up, was it? Yeah, I'm not sure about that. Because um, it's not long after that I um, left and joined the New Zealand in 1973. Right, yeah. right gotcha. Yeah. Yeah. So that's before the Blunties even turned up? Um, no, was they were oh, no, there. They were there. Yeah. So do you get to fly one of those? I went on some flights with them, yeah. I, um, uh, I had a, uh, actually the best flight I had one was uh, when I was in Warbirds afterwards and the, the Blunties went up to Kai Tire and Warbirds went up there too and so we set off on this um, uh, Trev was um, Trev Bland was flying a, a lead Blunty with an Air Force pilot yep. and I was flying a number two with an Air Force pilot and um, we did this Wild tail chase and airplane had never flown before, really. And <laughs> <laughs> typical Trevi, he ended up with this sort of thing going straight up and, yeah, and um, turning. And he took a tail chase very seriously. If he couldn't throw you off, he didn't know what he, he thought he was really doing something wrong. So, so in this one, he just kept going up and up and up. And I said, Well, it's going to work for him, it's going to work for me. So, hang in there. <laughs> but, um, uh, I was glad when we ended up going back downwards again, gaining some speed. <laughs> but I never, I never looked at the clock. Never saw what we got down to. Wasn't much. <laughs> <laughs> I bet the pilot beside you was watching. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Didn't say anything. You know, well, he was frightened. Speechless. I don't know. <laughs> that was a good trip. Yeah, sounds like it. <laughs> yeah. So you went to the Air New Zealand in '73, and you said you went on to the DC-8. Yes. Yeah. And uh, did you enjoy that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a good aeroplane. Yeah. Mm. 
eventually got my captaincy on that on the on the freighter with oh, yeah. on, but uh, yeah, I joined on the DC eight, went to the DC ten, and uh, things have got a bit um, stressful for New Zealand for a while there because you know the the DC tens were grounded for quite a while, and some guys went back to DC eights, but I, we just went into limbo really. Okay. Not doing much at all. Was I mean, that after the crash, or? Well, there was the Turkish Airlines one and uh, and the French one and. Oh, uh, right. oh no, not the French one. Apologies to the French. <laughs> There's some other incidents, you know, with the tail door, the cargo door. And, oh right, okay. Um, yeah, can't remember very well, but. So it's a bit similar to what's happening now with the seven eight seven engines. Yes, yes, it was a bit more structural. Yeah, but yeah. that's right. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so um, I think from what I heard at the time, you know, they're getting down to where it was, uh, where they're um, going to have difficulty making the pay the next time around sort of thing. Right. So it's, it's pretty tight. Yeah, it is. Okay. So then 742, 742, so I got captaincy on the on the, on the the 8. Um, by that time I must have, uh, yeah, I'd been, done some time on the 747-200. Then I went to the, um, on the 747-200, uh, I became the training rep on the, on the um, team for the introduction of the 744. Mm -hmm. And so we went off to, and did a course in Amsterdam, on, because they had one of the first simulators up and running, mm -hmm. with the Boeing instructors, who were only about half a page ahead of us. And the simulator wasn't very good either. He just kept throwing uh, problems at us that were um, unusual to say the least. And so I was paired up with King Ken Mulgrew. I remember occasion where he had a double hydraulic failure. He was dealing with as a matter of course, which is a pretty busy operation. And then this other thing started introducing engine failures by itself and so forth. Right. So uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Makes it work. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. Alright. Yeah, that was that was good. So uh yeah, it was a good team and then we had of course the um uh difficulties with Alpa cause the airplane to be delayed, which is a bit of a shame. And the airplane went up to Hong Kong for a year, first airplane, then we got two quite close together. So uh, by that time keeping number of uh, crew current and trained for and then introduced two airplanes together was quite a difficult operation. Right. Yeah. And so uh, uh, then we had some individuals causing difficulties along the way as well, but that's another story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, there's always a bit of politics in an airline, yeah, isn't there? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. People yeah. with their own ideas and stuff. Yeah. Okay. And of course, during all this time, you've also um, become one of the original Warbird members. Yes, yes. Well, um, Trev got hold of me and, and said that, uh, you know, because we'd, we'd been next door neighbours down to Hakia. He'd been over the back fence and used to spend quite a bit of time in each other's company. Mm -hmm. They're... Um, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, so he, he, he let me know when these harvests were coming up mm -hmm. and some of us formed a, a syndicate and uh, <clears throat> we were fortunate to get an aeroplane and we had some great guys from the syndicate, Brian Rhodes and uh, uh, Tony Butcher and uh, who both had some mechanical background as well. Uh, AC Edwards, beg your pardon, not Brian, uh, Brian Rhodes. Um, in that um, Ace had the technical background and um, Brian was uh, his flight dispatcher and other background. And uh, so other guys, we got up and up and going. So um, 98, uh, still going well out there. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good aeroplane. And, uh, and then um, it developed really. We, well, we also had the other guy, early guys in there were guys like Ernie Thompson, don't see so much anymore. Yeah. He had his own aeroplane. 92, the Warbirds got, the Trev flew. Um, and it grew from there. And so Trev wanted me to be the CFI for QFI for the, which I was for the first 10 years. And uh, which put me into um, running uh, the operational side of air shows of both at Ardmore, we had to, I can't remember whether it was 78, must have been around about there with the, the big thunderstorm um, went through at the end of it, and towards the end of it and the, oh, we had, uh, I, I apologise, the guy, I can't remember his name, he brought the DAC up from um, Gisborne, top dresser pilot from down there, yep. and uh, did a marvellous display in that with sheets of water streaming off this thing, I was up in the tower watching and uh, yeah, spectacular. Wow. Yeah, it was a good, good day out. And then the, uh, um, going down to uh, Monaco every couple of years or so we were, was good fun. Yep. And then the uh, Venom came along and so Trev, uh, we, we worked quite a bit on that with a chap down the road from Bill Rolfe who was in Warbirds and still flying um, down at Thames. Mm -hmm. And Paunui, uh, and so uh, we've worked quite a bit with Bill out at Fanuapai on putting the venom together. But the Air Force guys and so forth did most of the work, and I was nominally there more. But um, I enjoyed it anyway. Enjoyed his company. Yeah. And uh, it was great to see it finally get airborne. Yeah. And uh, not too long after that, I got to fly it. Um, very much like a vampire to fly, because they had, that model had still had the, um, well, it had unpowered controls, it had the servo tabs on it, on the ailerons, mm -hmm. everything was, else was uh, straight to the control, wire to control, um, and um, I was very fortunate to fly with Trev and some of the displays and the Mustang and the in the Venom, which is good to see some copies still around of that old movie. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing it live and it was always fantastic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I saw it a couple of times. It was really good. Yeah, yeah. Looking back and looking at the movie, you can see that the, the Venom's quite a bit bigger, isn't it? Quite a lot heavier and yeah. big solid engine in it, but also quite a big wing on it. And so it seemed to respond pretty well. Um, and... Of course, Trev very smooth to follow anyway. Yeah. That just about flies it for you. So it was uh, 
They were um, heady days, really. Mm. So, in the air displays, was it always you in the uh, Venom and Trev in the Mustang? Or? Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. you, did you fly the Mustang as well? No, I had ride in the back of it. Okay. But, uh, uh, that was uh, also had a bit to do with the, um, the T28. That's the only other heavy prop machine that I flew because uh, I got asked to um, check out on that and uh, and trained it, some of the guys in that syndicate until Peter Beaumont particularly got up and running and then he took over that. But that was good to fly too. Um, it was a, an interesting design and one of the interesting things about it was that they would taken the best out of the World War II aeroplanes and put them in. One of the features was they wanted to to have it f be able to fly as a heavier aeroplane than it was as well. So they they could make adjustments to the sort of bell crank and the bells of the ship to uh, to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But it uh, lots of grunt and good performer and uh, used to. Um, so on the checkout I did, we did a little spinning as well, we'd take it out over the golf and, and uh, that was quite awesome. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was, um, used to charge downhill and, uh, and spin pretty fast. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So they didn't do it for very long. We, I think we ended up about 14,000 feet and launched into that. And, wow. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> do you do any flying these days? No, I flew models for a while, but... Um, I got grounded with it. The problem with my meniere's disease with the ear. Oh, right. Can't hear well. And the doc specialist said uh, couldn't allow me to. So I was able to fly in a crude airplane in Air New Zealand with another pilot with that, but not a single seater. Oh, right, okay. So uh, when I finished with the airline, I went back to see him and he said he's, he hadn't. It was too unpredictable. It had burned itself out pretty much, but he still said he couldn't put his signature on oh, yeah. something like that, so I dropped it. Okay, that's a shame. Hmm. Yeah. Um, when you look back, I mean, you've covered a lot there transport and hmm. um, warbirds and fighters and hmm. all that. What period do you look back most fondly on? Um, well, I suppose uh, I really enjoyed the time with the guys uh, on Vampires. It's a, a time of great camaraderie, and also with the instructors down at Wigram was another one. Um, I think probably they'd be the highlights in many ways for the for the social side of it, for the, the flying side of things. The the, the Vietnam experience is uh, is. Uh, Important in a different sense. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, uh, right. did uh, did your tour in Vietnam change your view politically about the Vietnam situation, or did you come out of it thinking the same way as you went into it? Um, no, I didn't change it a lot, really. Uh, I didn't feel that they were politically particularly wrong, it was particular would have to say it was being executed poorly. Yeah. Um, I think the 
the American way to fight the war at that particular time with the, um, McNamara and some of those guys uh, <clears throat> trying out new theories, <laughs> which didn't work, yeah. was particularly unsuccessful. It's an interesting time historically because of the um, the way the public opinion um, was able eventually to um, change the change what happened, yeah. and clearly an, an enormous amount was learnt. Um, about how to do things, but showed in the first Gulf War, I think, that if you're going to do this, probably everybody's going to be involved and everybody's going to know about what's going on, then you better get it over and done with, do it, do it, do it once, do it right. And, uh, I was actually um, was on 747 flying between uh, um, Honolulu and uh, Los Angeles one night and the first news flashes came through that first strikes were going in on Baghdad and so on. Mm -hmm. yeah. Anyway, at, um, at the time, yeah, I was there when it when it peaked in Vietnam. I think they had 550,000 troops. And at that, while I was there, they started um, pulling first ones out. Yeah. Right. Mm. Okay. But it seemed at the time, to me, and not that I could see the, the big picture really, that um, some areas were being locals were going back to um, to areas that had been bad guys only for quite a while. Okay, mm. so that almost looked like you were winning a little bit. Yeah, yeah, but uh, um, I don't know whether these things are really winnable. Really, no. <laughs> it's uh, yeah, I think. Uh, Do you think it's actually better that how it sort of has turned out where Vietnam's now recognised as a pretty good country now? Yeah. Um, they're back, yeah, in the, right. back on yeah, the world scene again. And good tourist country and um, it's back in, in those sort of days it was different because one of the reasons I think is that you could be a fanatic about something and a lot of people would believe you. But in, these days, with everybody gets news from around the world on TV every yeah. day, you can everyone can make their own assessment. Somebody yeah. these days said, "Oh, pack your bag, you're going to go and fight in the in, in the trenches in World War One, sort of thing." They'd tell you to shove it, wouldn't they? Yeah, you That's just exactly. wouldn't do it. Wouldn't exactly. make sense. You'd say, "No, I'm not going to do that." <laughs> you're right. We've all become very cynical about everything these days. <laughs> Yeah. I think the propaganda no longer works. Yeah, that's right. Or even if it's even if it's um, the truth, then the op someone on the other side will come up with propaganda that will cloud it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not many people around this country are for suicide missions or things like that. No, no. Uh, <laughs> rather go to the beach. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's still important issues around, but um, better ways to solve them. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, well, very good. Thank you very much. Yes, I really, really appreciate yeah, it, John. Yeah. Yeah. Good. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.